When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello, and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Dmitry Sevastopoulos, U.S.-China correspondent for the Financial Times, filling in for Gideon Rackman. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at relations between the U.S. and China. My guest is Michelle Flournoy, one of the top defense experts in the U.S., She served as the Pentagon's Undersecretary for Policy during the first term of the Obama administration. Today, she runs West Exec Advisors, a strategic consultancy, and chairs the Center for a New American Security, a bipartisan national security think tank in Washington. As Chinese economic power and global clout has increased over the past 30 years, the challenge of managing complex geopolitical relations with Beijing has increased for each U.S. president. So... How will the Biden administration handle China? Greater prosperity and greater security. That's what uh, American and Chinese cooperation can deliver. When Joe Biden entered the White House, he inherited a U.S.-China relationship that was markedly different from the Rose Garden optimism of the early Obama years when he served as vice president. The United States welcomes the rise of a China that is peaceful, stable, prosperous, and a responsible player in global affairs. Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump, launched a trade war with China as part of his America First policy. Then, in his final year, he took dozens of actions to counter the growing national security threat from China. But as he implemented his China policy, Trump was less interested in engaging with allies to help take on Beijing. As president, I have rejected the failed approaches of the past, and I am proudly putting America first, just as you should be putting your countries first. But that's changing under Joe Biden. America is back. We will repair our alliances and engage with the world once again. Biden has taken a very strong stance on China during his first three months in office, over everything from its aggressive military activity around Taiwan to its crackdown on the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong and human rights abuses of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. China is trying very hard to become the world leader and to get that moniker, and as long as they're engaged in activity that is contrary to basic human rights, it's going to be hard for them to do that. What makes the U.S.-China relationship hard to cipher is how much the two countries have become intertwined. Pressure the Biden administration exerts on China, over human rights, for example, can ripple across the economy, with Western brands caught in the middle. 
Nike is facing a backlash on social media in China after saying it was concerned about reports of forced labor of Uyghurs in the Xinjiang region. We are seeing videos of Chinese burning Nike shoes online. Those have been circulating all day today amid calls to boycott the company. When the Biden administration held its first high-level meeting with Chinese officials in Alaska last month, the two countries had an extraordinary public spat, with China essentially accusing the U.S. of being an imperial power that was trying to impose its values on others. So I started our conversation by asking Michelle if we're witnessing the emergence of a Cold War between Washington and Beijing. I actually don't think a Cold War is the right way to think about it. That sort of takes us back to a very bipolar world with the Soviet Union and an all-out, and but primarily, military competition. I mean, the truth is, China is a fully integrated economy in the global economy. It is a rising power. And yes, we do have uh, a competition that I think is heating up, but it has many dimensions. It's an economic competition. It's a technological competition. It's an ideological competition to some extent between an authoritarian approach to the world and a more democratic one. And it's, of course, has, a, has military dimensions as well. But it's also true that we have to cooperate with China in critical areas like addressing climate change or preventing the next pandemic. And so it's a much more complex relationship and a harder set of challenges to manage. I mean, in Washington right now, we are in a very polarized world, uh, not just because of Donald Trump. Increasingly, Congress has become polarized, and I think the whole city to a certain extent. When it comes to China, how much consensus do you think there is, A, in terms of what the challenge is, and B, how to deal with that challenge? I think there's a fair amount of consensus across both sides of the aisle on the challenge that China poses. I think still to emerge is a consensus around a strategy. I think the Trump administration took a very tactical and fairly ad hoc approach to China. Um, I think the Biden administration is going to take some time to come up with a more strategic and longer term approach. We know some key elements of that already. One is investing in our own competitiveness, the domestic drivers of our competitiveness here at home, whether it's science and technology, research and development, 21st century infrastructure, smarter immigration policy, making some big bets in key technology areas where we absolutely have to keep our edge. You know, you see the administration focused on let's get through COVID, let's recover economically, let's shore up our foundations and be in a better position to compete with China, particularly because the narrative in Beijing is all about U.S. decline. So we're going to you know, prove them wrong on that point. And then the second key element that's emerging is we're going to approach China with our allies, with our partners. So putting the emphasis on the quad right up front. When you talk about the Quad, you know, the US, India, Japan, and Australia, uh, obviously Japanese Prime Minister Suga is going to be the first foreign leader to visit President Biden at the White House um, within uh, a week or so. What do you think the US would like its allies in Asia and also in Europe to do more in the military area when it comes to countering China? And what do you think are the concerns from the Allies side in terms of 
you know, how far they can go without triggering a backlash from China that may not be in their interest and how they both balance those things. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to do is to signal this is not about containing China. That doesn't apply to a country that is as integrated into the international system as China is. Um, but what I think the first thing we want to see from allies and partners is investment in their own ability to defend themselves, to defend their sovereignty, to defend their airspace, their maritime approaches, and so forth. So having friends participate alongside us in freedom of navigation operations where we demonstrate that these are areas that we consider, according to the treaty, to be international waterways and not the domain of any one country. There's a very important signal sending. And we do it, again, much more effectively together. Can we switch a little bit to something that's been in the news quite a little bit recently, which is Taiwan. And in recent months, we've seen a significant increase in Chinese military activity around Taiwan. Uh, including a record number of fighter jets and bombers on multiple occasions entering Taiwan's air defense identification zone. We were told recently by a senior U.S. official that the Biden administration was worried that China may now be flirting with seizing control of Taiwan or trying to do so. How worried are you that China is gearing up for military action against Taiwan? You know, I do think it is a risk, but it's not a likely scenario. And let me explain. I I don't think China wants a war with the United States or with others in the international community. You know, they are all about keeping stability for Communist Party rule, about growing their economy, about improving their global position. And I hope they would understand that a war would actually undermine a lot of their objectives. The risk is one of miscalculation. If they actually start believing their own propaganda about U.S. decline, that the U.S. mishandled COVID and the U.S. is so divided internally that we're preoccupied and we're retreating from the world stage and the U.S. economy is broken and on and on and on, you know, there's kernels of truth in all of that, but we are also the most resilient nation on earth and we're turning the corner on COVID. We're going to come back economically. I think thanks to this administration, we're going to invest in the drivers of our competitiveness and the United States is going to come back very strong. That's what we do. But if the Chinese believed their own propaganda, there's a risk that they could underestimate our resolve and underestimate our ability to come to the defense of a country like Taiwan if it was attacked unprovoked. And so it's really a risk of miscalculation that needs to be managed here. But I don't think that China is going to try to take Taiwan by force. They will put economic pressure on them. They will coerce them. They will try to absorb as much of as they can through foreign direct investment and all kinds of other mechanisms but all out war, I think they have to understand that that is not a wise course of action. So, so when you see them uh, doing or conducting the activity around Taiwan that they're doing both in the air and at sea, what's your interpretation? Is it a training exercise to be prepared for potential conflict? Is it just trying to intimidate Taiwan for political reasons? How do you assess it? I think it's certainly for intimidation and coercion. 
It is certainly to gain experience and training and to have options to exercise if it ever came to that. And I also think it's not just directed at Taiwan. I think they use these kinds of aggressive actions to intimidate other countries uh, in the area as well, uh, to sort of like mind your P's and Q's, go along with what we say, and you won't be subjected to this. And when you look at the the activity both uh, around Taiwan, also in the East China Sea, the, the Senkaku or the Diaoyu Islands, where, where there's a dispute between Japan and China. There's a lot of activity there by the Chinese Coast Guard and Air Force. You know, this year is 20 years since uh, an incident in the air between a U.S. spy plane and a Chinese jet, which resulted in the U.S. plane having to land on Hainan Island and, and a, a big crisis at the time. How worried are you about accidents either at sea or in the air, provoking some kind of a, a standoff or bigger problem? Or do you think the Chinese military has become more professional and that's actually less of a worry today than it was in the past? I wish I could say that. I <laughs> I do worry about an accident triggering a crisis that no one really wanted. You know, if the EP3 type of incident happened today in a much more tense uh, uh, and troubled relationship, um, I think it would be very difficult and it would, there, you'd have much greater risks of misunderstanding and escalation on both sides. Um, you know, I think one of the things in the East China Sea that has helped or that certainly helped in the Obama administration and then was continued under Trump was making it very clear that as a matter of policy, the U.S. recognizes administ Japan's administrative control over the Senkakus as part of what we would defend in an Article 5 treaty, our defense commitment to Japan. And so we, we made a statement of clarity that very clearly said, if you go to war with Japan over the Senkakus, you are also going to war with the United States. And I do think that has had some deterrent effect. Picking up the baton from there, when it comes to Taiwan, obviously Taiwan is not a treaty ally the way Japan is, so it's different. But there's been a, my sense is a little bit of a growing debate in Washington as to whether the U.S. should maintain its decades-long policy of what's called strategic ambiguity, where the U.S. does not make clear whether it would actually come to Taiwan's defense in the case of uh, Chinese military action. Given the circumstances that we face today, given the huge growth in the Chinese military over the last uh, decade or so, do you think there's an argument now to move to a policy of strategic clarity where the U.S. would make clear that it would actually respond to any aggressive action towards Taiwan in the same way that the mutual defense treaty with Japan and the Senkaku, the U.S. has provided that clarity, uh, as you said? I think we have benefited from the ambiguity in recent decades from enabling us to continue to work productively with China while also making it clear that we care about democracy and Taiwan. I think the question is whether I wouldn't go all the way to absolute strategic clarity. I think what I would think about doing is, do we want to clarify to China that if their aggression against Taiwan is unprovoked, they can expect a U.S. and international response to help defend Taiwan? Because I think part of the concern about ultimate strategic clarity or a categorical, unconditional commitment to Taiwan's defense in the past has been, well, what if you had a Taiwanese government sort of unilaterally declare independence and separation from China? And that provoked the crisis. 
would that change the U.S. calculus and so forth? But I think what we can and probably should say to China is, look, you know, if this is unprovoked, meaning you are clearly the aggressor, we are going to come to their defense and you should expect that. And you're going to be taking us on along with others. When I think back, when I covered the Pentagon during the Bush administration, I remember that many years the Pentagon's annual report on the Chinese military would say that the U.S. had underestimated the progress that China had made over the previous year. Fast forward to 2021. Since then, China's had a continued a dramatic military expansion. It now has, in terms of numbers, a bigger navy than the U.S. Navy. How significant do you think it is that China is rapidly shrinking the lead that the U.S. military has enjoyed over the Chinese military? It is significant. And yes, they have sort of quantitative matching or in some cases overmatching because they can concentrate their forces in their backyard, whereas we are a global force that has to project power forward. But I think the more important factor is they've really gone to school on the American way of war, and they've come up with an, an asymmetric approach to trying to stop us or to undermine our strengths and exploit our weaknesses. The translation, roughly, is system destruction warfare, which means they will launch early cyber attacks, attacks on space-based assets and others to really try to stop the war before it starts, to try to immobilize our networks and therefore immobilize our forces from being able, able to get to the region, let alone fight effectively or operate effectively there. We have to have an answer to that. They also have the advantage of what is called civil military fusion, which is in an authoritarian system, if they see an interesting commercial technology in their equivalent of Silicon Valley, they just direct that the military must have it. <laughs> mm. That's a very different situation than what we find ourselves in where, you know, bridging that gap between the Department of Defense and the innovation ecosystem in this country has been uh, a challenge and one that continues to be worked. But this is an urgent issue. I, th I really do think that what the administration does in terms of changing the DOD approach to be ready for a very different kind of challenge to deter great power conflict in the future, what we do in the next four years will determine a lot of how successful we are in the next 40 do you think America right now has the, the right military or the right structure to uh, defeat China in any conflict that might arise in the future? Look, we still have the best military in the world. We have the most operationally experienced military in the world. We have the best people. We have an incredible all-volunteer force. We have the, probably the best technology, truthfully. But we haven't put it all together yet. We need to change concepts we need to retrain forces for a different kind of fight in the future and for deterrence. We need to accelerate our adoption of the new technologies that are going to make a difference. Recently, the, the head of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, Admiral Davidson, testified before Congress. And his staff provided some really interesting charts looking at the balance of forces between the U.S. and China in the Indo-Pacific. And if you looked at that at face value and didn't know much about the military, it looked like China had an awful lot more. But as you said earlier, the US has a global force and has commitments around the world. But if it came to a conflict over Taiwan or in somewhere else in the South China Sea or the East China Sea, China does have a big presence in its, uh, in its neighborhood. 
Does that mean that the U.S. has to think about putting more assets in the Indo-Pacific region to counter that? Or are there ways that you can actually make up for the deficit of assets in the neighborhood of, uh, of the Chinese mainland? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we need to be aware of quantitative imbalances for sure. But the way that the key challenge for the U.S. is we are so used to being the dominant conventional military and that others have to deal with that dominance by taking asymmetric approaches against us. Now we're in the, it's flipped around. We have to think asymmetrically. So how do you gain advantage and keep the advantage in that situation where you may be quantitatively outmatched? Number one, you've got to have better, faster decision-making than the adversary, right? And that means using things like AI and machine learning to sort through data glean the relevant insights, get it to the right people uh, so that human beings can make better, faster decisions. Um, Number two, you've got to have that resilient network that keeps functioning to allow operations to continue even when it's under attack. And number three, you have to invest in things that neutralize that quantitative advantage in platforms that the Chinese have, whether it's integrating lots of unmanned systems that are teamed with human operators, or whether it's using munitions instead of thinking about platforms having to penetrate the contested environment using munitions that can be launched from standoff ranges and so forth. So there's lots of different concepts and things that have to be tried, but we really have to think asymmetrically. And how easy is it to change that mindset to think in a kind of a more asymmetric way when you have been the dominant power for decades, and particularly in the Pacific? I think it's very hard for folks maybe at the end of their careers that have been schooled and trained and successful, frankly, in one approach. But I think several, you know, over history, militaries, many militaries have reached this juncture. I'm told that, remember, Andy Marshall, uh, the great founder of the Office of Net Assessment, talked about what the Germans did when they, you know, the tank was first fielded in World War I by the British, but it wasn't really hugely impactful until the Second World War. And that's because the Germans coupled the tank, the technology, with a new concept of Blitzkrieg. And the tank supported by close air support, supported by mechanized infantry, blasting through allied lines. But I'm told the way they got there is they put a bunch of field grade younger officers in a room and said, there are three-year-olds. You have to use this technology, you have to break current doctrine, and you have to win. And anything else is fair game. And they basically incentivized and created a competition that got new thinking. That's the kind of conceptual work we need to be doing in the U.S. military today. That's fascinating. Maybe if you think of AI as the modern-day tank in that sense, how concerned are you that China has caught up pretty quickly in AI and has such a huge data set given the size of its population, which is obviously the key component of artificial intelligence. So AI will be an area of critical competition, not only for our militaries, but also economically uh, in terms of all of the commercial applications. The National Security Commission on AI that Eric Schmidt and Bob Work co-chaired, I think, is the most important commission report since the 9-11 commission. And, and I would hope that just about every recommendation they make, it will be implemented, not only because it'll help advance ethical and responsible AI applications, but also 
because it will help create an ecosystem that's going to advance us and make us more competitiveness in a whole host of emerging technologies like semiconductors and 5Gs and other. So a very important piece of work. The Chinese about five, six years ago made a decision to really double down. And the one advantage of an authoritarian system is that you can direct a whole of nation approach. And whether it was talent management and, you know, STEM grads, whether it was investments in key companies, whether it was the civil military fusion dimension, they really went after trying to gain parity on AI. And they are pretty close in some areas and in others we still lead. But we can't sit on our hands here. We have got to have a national kind of moonshot effort on AI if we're going to remain competitive. And if we're going to have AI internationally that is constrained and informed by our norms and standards, by ethics, as opposed to completely unconstrained in ways that can become quite horrific quite quickly. One of the areas that that I'm really fascinated uh, in, and I think probably we in the media don't write enough about, is China's nuclear arsenal. I mean, it's been growing its uh, numbers of nuclear weapons. It's not constrained by any nuclear arms control treaties. How concerned are you that Essentially, you now have the two biggest powers in the world, and Joe Biden has made some efforts with uh, the New START Treaty and the Russians. But in terms of China, there are really no restraints. What can the U.S. do about that, and how big a concern is it? I do think we should be opening strategic stability talks with China. I'm not sure, given the imbalance, you know, we still have a much larger arsenal than they do, that they will go for an arms control treaty, mainly because it probably wouldn't yield absolute parity in the way that we have sort of gotten into rough parity with the Russians. But I do think the question of strategic stability of how will we avoid escalation to the nuclear level? How can you avoid other technologies like strategic use of cyber, like attacks in space, other things that could get you on an escalation ladder to the nuclear level? How do you Think about those things. Are there certain types of cyber attacks or space-based attacks that we want to take off the table because of the nuclear escalation risk? Those are the kinds of dialogues that we need to be having with the Chinese. Michelle, just to wrap up, if you think back over your career and think where we are now, what has surprised you most about U.S.-China relations and what worries you most today? I think what has surprised me the most is how quickly they've moved from a sort of hide and bide posture, meaning we're just a middle developing power. Don't worry about us. We have no aggressive intentions. We're focused on being integrated into the international community and and so forth. To under Xi, we are going to replace the U.S. as the number one power we're going to call the shots in Asia. We are reclaiming the Middle Kingdom. China is going to be the strongest. China is going to dictate terms to everybody smaller. The progression of the rhetoric and the behavior has changed in less than a decade. We've seen them dramatically change their behavior and their posture and their rhetoric. What worries me most is the risk of miscalculation. We do not understand each other well. They underestimate our resolve. They underestimate 
that we're paying attention. They underestimate our capability. And that sets them up for making really bad decisions <laughs> if they're not careful. Mm. Um, so I, that's what I worry about. I just worry about that they do not see us clearly. We may not fully understand their strategic calculus. And you have two nuclear powers in a very competitive situation that are very vulnerable to miscalculation that could have catastrophic results. So that's what keeps me up at night. Michelle, thank you very much uh, for your time and for your insights on uh, the U.S.-China relationship. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That was Michelle Flournoy ending this edition of the Rackman Review. If you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate it if you could tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find the Rackman Review in all the usual podcast apps. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.